0: Ah, I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode? Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Re-Educated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gotham Yagopin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I hope y'all are having another phenomenal week. Last week, we talked about love. This week, we're turning to the other side of the same coin. Today, we're talking about death. Before moving forward, I just wanted to mention that this podcast episode includes emotional topics including addiction, mental illness, grief, and suicide. If you or someone you love is experiencing an emotional crisis, call 988- and or text 741-741. Once again, call 988 and or text 741-741. Over these last few years, I've had many people in my life pass away. I've particularly been watching a few close family members who are clearly suffering from depression deteriorate as the people around them choose to just not even recognize the mental health issues at play. There's this belief that if we ignore these other existential dreads that my grandparents are facing, if we just focus on their physical health, let's just put all our effort towards that, the fact that they don't really even have a reason to want to survive does not even need to be addressed. And due to this, this question has been riddling me. At what point does life begin to not be worth it? And this I think is arguably one of the most pressing questions a person must answer throughout their entire life. For every time we inevitably suffer, we have to remind ourselves, why do we choose to continue to stay alive? Similarly with love, I feel like death is not a concept that has been addressed by education, it is completely ignored. I find that when the frailty of life is not kept in focus, the frivolous has so much more space to occupy. Oh my food fell on my white t-shirt and now I won't be able to go to the wedding anymore. It's All of these other issues only have so much more space to fill when we forget that life is so frail. This assumption that life is worth living is not one that education systems should ever take for granted. To deepen my understanding of these topics, I spoke with Ann Moss Rogers, a mental health speaker and an author, who wrote Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk. I wanted to first, before even getting to the conversation, thank Anne Moss for sharing her story. This episode was really hard for me to record, but it was easily one of the most touching and beautiful conversations I've been blessed to be a part of. This conversation taught me a lot about how to be there for others who may be suffering from depression or despair. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I wanted to first understand how Anne Moss found herself working in the mental health space and understand more about her story.
1: So, and about around 2010, I started to focus on youth mental health. Now I owned a digital marketing firm at the time, but I focused on youth mental health because I noticed that my youngest son was struggling and I, I didn't know what he was struggling with at first. And from 2010, over the next five years, we would really, really struggle because he started to use a lot of drugs and alcohol. And I would find out later that he was using drugs and alcohol to numb thoughts of suicide. So Charles had a sleep disorder, but he also suffered from depression. And I think the two kind of fed into each other. He also struggled with anxiety. And he would have these episodes where he would be up at night and his ruminating turned into a suicidal thought episode. I never knew this and he never told me about any of this. So we were all focused on why is he doing all these drugs and of course, you know, I was in fear for his life. Um, So we went to a lot of mental health professionals locally and I remember asking about suicide and nobody ever really told me anything. It was kind of like I wanted to snatch it out of the air and put it back in my pocket because they would just glaze over the question. And when they did that, me being a parent who wants to act like it doesn't have anything to do with my family. I just thought, Oh, well, it's not relevant to us. I asked at least twice, and I know that my son wrote a lot of rap lyrics that reflected thoughts of suicide, and I never saw those rap lyrics, but I know some of the counselors did, and again, no one ever told the parents, and we were really involved with family work. I mean, we were really trying to support our child, and I mean, I was kind of begging for that information, and no one was providing it. So I ended up kind of dismissing it as being relevant to my family. So we were seeing a counselor, uh, at the time, my husband and I on what to do with our youngest son because he was misusing substances and I suspected that there was some kind of mental health component. And I remember asking him to do, um, I said, I "Really want a diagnosis? I think he may be suffering from depression." And the counselor said, "Well, usually anybody who suffers from depression is asking for help, and your son's not asking for help, so he doesn't suffer from depression." Like case closed. I remember thinking, "Really? That that's what it is?" He ended up reckon, uh, recommending that we kidnap our son out of his bed and take him to a wilderness program. So wilderness program is in the wilderness. They don't get to take electronics and a lot of therapy is included and you actually do get uh, what they call a psychological evaluation. Now this is after we had exhausted all other local resources and I can tell you it wasn't plan A. Um, Because there's a lot of grieving that goes with that loss of normal once you send your child away without their knowledge, which just makes you feel like the most deceitful person on earth. Mm. And of course he didn't like it. You know, nobody wants to be plopped in the cold (laughs) woods in the middle of April with no electronics and he was really angry for the first few weeks, but he did finally kind of comply. And from there they recommended that we send him to therapeutic boarding school. Therapeutic boarding school is school and therapy, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And that's because a lot of the kids will succumb to drug and alcohol addiction and they want to keep them away from that. So they can develop healthy coping strategies. So he comes home and around in 2014, having spent some 22 months outside our home in some kind of placement. And he's graduated from high school by now, thank God. Um, really, really smart kid, creative genius. So the that sort of test, cram test and take strategy <laughs> wasn't his bag. I mean, he mm. did, you know, when you're a creative child, you're looking for, ways to express yourself and there just were so few opportunities There were a lot of worksheets and a lot of homework and just kind of wrote memory stuff that not a lot of life skills training or social emotional learning. And so he really, it, it wasn't a good fit, but we got it done. What I didn't know when he came back was that he started using drugs and alcohol right away. I thought, well, he's going to use some of these other coping strategies. And I didn't think he was going to come home all fixed. I mean, we had done quite a bit of family work while he was away. I mean, we drove or flew up to wherever he was. And we worked really hard to, to try to get on the same page. He becomes addicted to heroin. And the way I found out is a couple of policemen show up at the door, and show me pictures of them pawning our silverware. So he goes, he finally admits to being, um, addicted to an opiate. Never said heroin addiction because that is dripping with humiliation. Right? So he ends up going to detox, to rehab and then he goes to a recovery house at this point and he relapses like within 24 hours. It was their protocol to take him back to detox, spend three days and then he could come back to the recovery house. But once he got checked into detox, he wasn't ready for recovery. We were, but he wasn't. So he and a friend walked out cause he just wanted, you know, one more party. And I think they didn't want to go through withdrawal again, although both of them had only had one hit, and the withdrawal wouldn't have been like the epic withdrawal he had just recently gone through. So for two weeks, I don't know where he is. And my husband and I are at a restaurant on a Friday night, and I remember that Friday because it was awful, and I knew something terrible had happened. I couldn't put my finger on what it was and I remember the constant fear. I just felt like I was on edge all day long. And then my husband gets a call on his cell phone and I remember being totally freaked out by that phone call. And it was the police and they said that they were at our home but they would meet us in the parking lot. And then I I just knew. I knew they were coming to tell me my child was dead. And that's exactly what happened in the back of a police car in a parking lot. That's the news I got. I was sure he died of overdose, but the policeman said it was a suicide and the method left no question. I thought, how could I be such a crummy mother that my child would leave me this way? Didn't he know we loved him? And, It's not about love, but it took me a really long time to understand that. And I had to understand what suicide was. I had to talk to people with experience. I had to look at all the issues I needed really to drill down and find out the whys. And I'm so glad I did that. I sold my digital marketing business. And I decided to do this full time because it felt like the universe was pushing me in this direction.
0: Wow! Thank you for sharing that. Uh, need to just. And so. Wow. Um, I, I think I think sometimes you know when you you come across these. The best way I I guess I can put it is there are so many experiences that can be lived through. And sometimes it's easy to think that the problems or the the reality that you face is what it looks like for everyone else. And so when you hear stories that are just so drastically different in ways, it's like, whoa, this is all a part of life. And I think that that realization often takes away from the burden that, oh, I'm the only one feeling this or I'm the only one going through something like this. And I think that's such an important feeling for people to have where it's like not only of people in this culture in this time but for thousands and thousands of years have people been feeling similar feelings to you no matter what it is you're going through and so anytime I have these conversations where I'm, I'm starkly reminded of that it, it's kind of overwhelming sometimes and so I wanted to ask as a parent you, you mentioned at the end having this uh, asking these whys and, and understanding that it's not about love can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: So we think that our love can keep someone else alive. And no one kills themselves because you know, they're not, well, they may feel like they're not loved or feel like they're not worthy of that love in that moment or that episode of suicidal thinking. But we try to fix it and we try to guilt them. And we try to love them out of it. And if we say, you know, what about your parents or what about your sister or what about some other loved one in that moment of suicidal thinking, they can't think that way. All they want to do is they want to stop that pain and they're thinking they're a burden to the world anyway. So, Well, love is so powerful and it's definitely a part of every support system that's going to be successful. We need to understand we can't control another human being Mm. and that we and I look back and I see the mistakes that I made, but I also see my successes too. Love is such an important component in a, in addiction and mental illness. And it is really, really hard when you have a child or a family member that struggles with either one or both, how to communicate, how to love them just the way they are. And I wish I had said to my son, as much as I want you to get well, I love you even if you don't. I think he needed to hear that my love was unconditional because I do think when he took his life, he thought we had given up on him. We had not. But there are times when you're managing a child with mental illness or addiction or both where you kind of got to stop and take a breather and go, "I, I can't get any perspective. I need to check out for a minute let it marinate so that I can look at this again with a wise mind and not just emotional mind. And I was kind of taking that break at the same time my son was in crisis. Mm. And I just didn't recognize it because nobody had said he was at risk and everyone had just sort of dismissed the topic. So didn't have it as, you know, when I'm looking at everything that could potentially be going wrong, that wasn't even on the table because it wasn't on my radar. And I think it's important that it be on everyone's radar and that we understand that if you have a loved one who's struggling, to never withdraw love, to Mm. never make that a weapon in any way, but to reassure our, our loved ones that, even if we're setting limits or saying no to something, that it's not because we don't love them. It's it's because we have to do that for our own emotional wellness, our own mm. emotional.
0: Wellness. Wow, and that's a it's a really profound statement. I I've, I've actually found that in, in recent experiences of my own, where oftentimes when I feel hurt or when I feel not listened to immediately how I want to react is, okay, I'm going to pull back my love. I'm going to pull back my attention and my care. And I think when you weaponize that, then someone is going to always be on guard like, oh, is is this going to be the time they take it away? Maybe this time they're going to take it away. And you're just waiting until they eventually do. And so, you know, one thing I find to be really hard to even have this conversation is let's say you, for example, told me you're getting married or you're having a child. It's There's certain you're prepared for those moments. It's easy to be like, I know how to respond in that situation. I'm going to be like, I'm so happy for you. I'm so, but it's like when people talk about these, these more serious uh, issues that oftentimes we're not equipped with, how do we, how do we provide support for somebody? So if it's a friend or a family member or, or even a stranger who tells us, Hey, I'm not, I'm feeling this type of way and I'm not sure if I want to continue living, how can we best support someone in that state?
1: I think the first thing is, to listen with empathy and to say something like, tell me more. So if you suspect that somebody is struggling with despair and you're, you're not even at the point where you think, Oh, they're suicidal. We really need to focus on connecting with other human beings because mm. belonging is the foundation of suicide prevention but it's also the foundation of preventing people from getting to crisis in the first place. So we become more of a society that's kind of self-focused and like you as individual can do this yourself. You don't need help. And we're not meant to forge ahead without help and support and partnership. And I think that's really important to keep it to keep in mind. Um, so, you know, the, the, tell me more. And then as they talk, if you feel that sense of despair, if they say things like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to live anymore. I want to die. Um, I feel so worthless. I'm such a burden. All those are kind of red flag statements. And really the list goes on. It depends on the individual. But if you have that gut feeling of boy, this person really sounds like they are in despair. Then you should ask the question like, let's say sometimes when people are going through divorce, they struggle with thoughts of suicide. So I have to ask you, are you struggling with thoughts of suicide? You can ask directly. You don't want to say, are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? It's really kind of a cop out the person you're talking to needs to hear the word suicide. When you do that, you give that person permission for them to tell you if they are or they are not. Lots of times they will answer it honestly, but lots of times they will hesitate before saying no. So if they hesitate a few beats and then say no, ask it again or decide that, You're not taking, you're taking it as a yes. Because a lot of people don't want to tell you because they're ashamed of their deepest, darkest feelings. They feel weak. And it's not a weakness because it's actually terribly common for people to struggle at some point in their life with thoughts of suicide. So you need to listen long enough to ask that question listen with empathy. We don't want to say, you have so much to live for, wrong thing to say, or (laughs) trying to get attention, wrong thing to say. We want to ask more questions like, how long have you felt this way? Um, How were you thinking of ending your life? That last question gives you information to be able to pass on to a caregiver who might be able to do a suicide risk assessment and figure out how to keep that person safe from suicide by removing the way they were thinking of killing themselves. What you will often notice is that people feel relief, relief that they're able to tell someone of this burden that started off a little corn kernel in their brain and became this giant balloon taking up a ton of space in their brain real estate. And when they tell, It goes back down to a little kernel. So sharing those experiences is just so important. And then the next step is connecting that person with help. So you're a normal person, you don't know what the heck to do next, right? Call the suicide prevention hotline together and say, we're on this hotline. We don't know what to do next. My friend so-and-so feels this way try to loop that friend in to talk because you want them to take agency for their own mental health. So let's say you're on a college campus, maybe in that and in, in that case you go say, "Well, let's go talk to the RA or let's go to the counseling services together." You want to encourage that partnership. Or you call a parent or you, you know, call some emergency hotline. We need to sort of do that warm handoff because we don't exactly know what to do, but we want them to feel that we're with them in in that moment that they're struggling. And a lot of people are afraid to intervene. One, they say, "I'm not qualified. If you have ears and you have the ability to listen, you're qualified. because eighty seven percent of people who die by suicide tell, people like us they don't tell a mental health professional so we need to figure out just the basics of what to do to get that person connected with someone who can do a suicide risk assessment and a safety plan
0: i think you 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 brought up some really good points there this this concept you know i hear this all the time like you have so much to live for it gets it gets better don't it, it must get better i think sometimes just Uh, comes off as frivolous, as if you're not really understanding how the individual actually feels. And so, you know, I think you gave an excellent point of asking more questions. I think that's the best way to ever show someone that you care. It's very rare I have met where people actually want advice or they'll ask you if they want advice. They're like, I need advice. What do you think? But most of the time, people don't really want your advice. They just want to feel heard and they just want a space where someone seems like they care. And so, uh, so I appreciate you for actually giving those specific lines because I think it's once you have some sort of like go-to lines, you at least know what to fall back on. And I think that's really helpful to have. We, gotta the next meet,
1: thing... we have to meet people where they are. Mm. If that's mm-hmm. darkness and despair. That's what mm-hmm. we need
0: to mm. And I guess the question that I have for you next is... As someone who is listening to somebody share these things, you yourself will have your own feelings and maybe you'll be like, I'm not doing enough for this person or what did I do wrong for this person to feel this way or am I not giving them enough? How do you handle your own problems that may arise from this but separate it from the other individual and not maybe guilt them?
1: You know, I think an important thing to say to ourselves is I am enough. I'm not expected to fix this they Mm. really want to feel heard and because that's really the greatest gift you can offer another human being is to allow them to feel heard and you know even if you just go to the drugstore I went to the drugstore the other day and the lady behind the counter was you know wiggling her shoulder around and she was running up and she rung me up on the cash register and I said looks like something's wrong with your shoulder. And she explains what's wrong with that. And I'm like, must be so hard to get up in the morning and and come to work when it hurts that bad. And she just stopped and looked at me and she goes, thank you. Thank you for listening. I mean, you know, I didn't do anything fancy. And she just felt heard like, wow, somebody in this world cares that my shoulder hurts and that I had to get up and go to work. But I would have had a hard time checking out in time had she not shown up. So I think that we need to appreciate and, and really, I, I just think the connection piece is so important and something that we've really not mastered well in the digital world. And it, it's going to take some time for us to kind of catch up mm. and figure all that out because digital moves so much more quickly that our culture has been able to catch up. But I think we're at the precipice where we're starting to catch up. We're starting Mm -hmm. to recognize things. So you are enough. You may feel like I don't wanna intervene because I'm not qualified or I can't fix it, but it's gonna make you feel terrified to ask that question. It's gonna make you feel kind of terrified to walk into someone else's tragedy. But what I'm telling you is push through that feeling because the chances of them taking their life significantly go down if you intervene. And if you don't intervene, their their chances or their risk are the same or they go up. That person could still die by suicide. It's less likely, but it could happen. And, that's what people are afraid of, then that will be my fault. But it's not. You just did your best at the moment that you could. And I really feel like if people intervene and it still happens, I think that they just need to feel very proud of themselves for having the guts to, to intervene when they did. And that most of the time that listening to another human and allowing them to feel heard is that first step to healing. Hmm.
0: I, I think it's, it's beautiful, you know, being in academia. And this is actually something I, I had a few other conversations about mental health. And I have this fear that when we begin to introduce mental health into school curriculums, it's extremely scientific. It's what's happening in your brain in this area. And, and it's it's it becomes intellectualized where where, where, what you're saying is you know learning how to simply just listen can do so much more than like having the perfect diet and having the perfect sleep and knowing how to like look at your life and and this idea of being connected with the people around us in our communities. So a question I wanted to ask you is, have you seen differences among communities, maybe between small towns and big cities and uh, communities where they may have access to a lot of the Internet versus where they don't? Have you seen differences in communities when it comes to dealing with mental health?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, And then... So there's differences between urban and rural. There's differences between different ethnic groups. So lots of times we approach suicide prevention as a one size fits all. And that has traditionally been through a white lens because the majority of who's in power is, is white. But I've seen a huge shift in that in the last three years of understanding that different groups require different methods, you know, whereas in one group it might be that mental health is such a taboo topic, whereas another area it may be because it's driven by poverty and despair. we need to recognize what are the, the issues in this community? Is it perfectionism? Is it uh, historical trauma? And then we need to approach it from, from that perspective if we have a problem in a specific community. So in a school community, we usually have more of a melting pot, but we still need to figure out where is the majority and address that, but also make sure that the people on the margins are feeling heard because they're the ones that don't feel that connection and belonging. And there's some really, really simple strategies that Dr. Kim O'Brien and I uh, outlined in our book, Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide. And I mean, if your school is not allowing a program, an SEL program, social-emotional learning, or a suicide prevention program or mental health, it doesn't mean that you can't cultivate connection and belonging in your classroom. Mm. Because even if your school is saying, no, never mention the word, you can still do suicide prevention without mentioning the word. And that's maybe having a five minute game or um, I've got this little uh, one online that you can download free and it's called the fishbowl game. And you pick a little slip out of the bag and ask you a question Students love to play that game. And when I play it with them, usually if they pick the slip and they don't like what they see, they can stuff that one back and get another one out. But they love to kind of tell one fact about themselves that and share with everyone else. And that starts to create this somebody else, to, oh, I play the guitar too, you know, and they start to mm. connect with each other. So creating those opportunities where that happens it's such a simple concept, but it doesn't matter where we are. We can all do something simple like that in our educational settings. Because mm. they're a lot more open to listening and learning the content if we give everybody an opportunity to be seen and to be heard.
0: That was beautiful. I, I had never actually you know, thought about the teacher's role not only being to instruct and to teach the material but also being a person who creates connection between the students and a a proper teacher being the best teacher being one who who makes all the students feel as if they're on a team together as opposed to like individual individually competing for some you know arbitrary goal
1: well i think really and our our teachers a lot of our teachers really understand this and education kind of went to this test taking and i want to see the scores mentality but i think most teachers really understand that that it's important to give these kids life skills to coping strategies and and inspire critical thinking because that's what builds resilience
0: mm.
1: and the really the the strategies for starting this are so very simple and easy and what happens is you build those relationships with students they listen more they perform better their scores are better because emotionally healthy kids do what they perform better.
0: <laughs> better
1: or yeah. successful so i really feel like every school's mission should be a student's emotional wellness every mm. program should come back to does it benefit their emotional wellness in some way
0: and you know something i think a lot about now is I talk to people who have graduated. I I, I teach kids. And, and there's this common sentiment that people don't like school. And that's always been something, you know, and, and what really saddens me is from my hometown, there was a specific school where every other year someone would actually take their life because of school led stress, which I think once you take out of that bubble, once you're like removed from the bubble of academia, you just realize how kind of Silly, like some of those things are, like having a 4.0 versus a 3.8. Outside of the context of school, it's just, it's sometimes what I feel is that you can become so involved in a community or a bubble that you think that that bubble is the entire world. And as soon as you remove yourself from that city or that country, you just realize, oh, anywhere else, nobody even knows what's going on there. It's not even, it's not as big of a deal in that situation that you're in once you're able to like get some perspective and take yourself out, which is not to say that how you feel is not important, because when you're feeling that it feels as if it's the whole world that's on your on your back. But I think sometimes having the opportunity to even be like, okay, I'm feeling this way right now. I'm going to understand that it's because I've been around people who think the same way and I'm around societies that may value certain things. And if I can somehow figure out a way to just maybe walk, take a walk in nature or maybe, you know, leave the city, leave my city for a while and go on a road trip for the weekend. Just just to give, somehow teach people how to to get that perspective sometimes. I think that can really, you know, put this like damper on these extremely strong feelings.
1: I agree. I think stepping outside the box, doing something different, like I have... You know, I've been through. Uh, you know, I'm a brain tumor survivor. Um, I was attacked at Ninth Point and barely escaped rape and murder. I've been struck by lightning. I've died on the table during a diagnostic exam, and I've lost a child to suicide. I have a pretty big toolbox. So my mother died recently, and there was a lot of um, turmoil over something, and. It just put me in a, in a terrible place and, and not suicidal, but definitely just feeling really, really blue and grieving. And I noticed that my extremely full toolbox, it wasn't enough. I needed to step outside uh, and find something new. So I found, um, a local sort of, uh, meditation practice with Tibetan singing bowls it was amazing. I mean, you know, very cool. I went to the first meditation thing and that didn't want a good fit. And then I found the singing bowls and that was a good fit. So I didn't give up. You know, I tried several things before I found the singing bowls. And then when I was in there, I'm like, bingo, (laughs) this feels really good. And between sessions, I can kind of find one on YouTube and that's been very helpful but you're right expanding your horizons and kind of trying something new and doing what i call opposite action okay i want to curl up in my bed but i'm not going to do that i'm going to do this instead Mm -hmm. it's really a good way to kind of get your brain out of thinking about yourself and and to focus more on those healing you know those healing strategies
0: Mm -hmm. So, you know, now I actually, you mentioned, and this is something I'm personally learning as I'm entering adulthood, and, and I'm actually, this is more of a question for myself that I'm really curious to to hear your opinion on. And so, you know, I think um, getting reaching my middle 20s, and, and I feel like this is the first time I've had to deal with small inconveniences inconveniences and struggles on my own and where it's like all right I I can't really rely on I'm not I'm alone I'm not, I don't really have family here friends here I got to everything that happens even if I'm very sick whatever it is my car broke down I have to go deal with it myself I think one thing that I'm I'm struggling with now is every inconvenience sometimes feels so much larger than it really is so right now my back is hurting you know I have I pulled something and it's been weird for like 3 weeks but in my head, it's just such a big problem, and I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm focusing on it, and I think when I look at it through that lens, I'm like, "Wow, my entire as I move forward with my life, it's just it's going to be another battle to be another battle. It's a constant battle. I mean, it never ends. And so, what are some tools that we can kind of implement into our own lives to be able to like? How do I guess the question is how? That's what they say philosophy is teaching how to struggle properly like how what is the how do you face your struggle in, in a I guess I don't even have the right word to use how, how do you struggle I guess is a question
1: Well I think it's you can't not struggle right I mean Yeah you, I think it's minimizing your suffering and I think that's really that's what I was focused on in my greek journey how can I minimize my suffering Step one for me was adopting certain coping strategies Um, and that involved getting rid of all alcohol in my house. Uh, I wasn't a big drinker, but I saw what a slippery slope that could be to sort of want to numb the pain. And that included taking out ice cream too, because that's another thing you kind of want to numb your pain with. And And every Hollywood movie shows them going to the bar I think talking about it like you just did now is always helpful. So I found a peer group. I learned to exercise. And here's the thing about getting yourself out of a negative mindset. I decided to wake up every day after my son died and think of one thing I was grateful for. I was terrible at this probably for the first two weeks. But what that did eventually when I stuck with it it allowed this little crack of light to come into my life. And then I was able to see other joyful things happening around me. Because when you get in this negative mindset, all of a sudden, you're just focusing on threats to your personal safety and well-being, mm. and the whole world is against me. So I will make fun of myself when I get into that kind of mindset life. <clears throat> Oh, really? The whole world is against you and law So, you know, just you personally. What about this? What about that? And I think about things other people are going through. But I kind of do a little jokey thing with myself of like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's always the worst for you. And you're <laughs> stuck here with a flat tire. Is the world going to end? And really having that positive self-talk and recognizing when we're in this negative mindset and doing the grateful thing to let that crack of light in really helps us understand that there's more of a balance in life than we realize. Mm -hmm. I also recommend maybe kind of lowering your exposure to news, which is usually all bad news. Find some podcasts that, that tell some uplifting stories or funny stories, but, you can get yourself out of that mindset we mm. all get times where we feel like everything happens at once and it's not going well but emotions are temporary they're never permanent and they change quickly happiness sadness and the really really intense emotions last 60 to 90 seconds like if you are you've just broken up with a girlfriend and it's really intense and you're feeling the rejection, you got to feel your feelings. You got to sit with them. They're going to lift. They're not going to last forever and they are not going to kill you. But the way to heal is to feel the feelings and the pain you feel are the emotional block, are uh, their emotional healing blocks to finding that healing mm. and I find that a lot of people are just afraid to feel the feelings.
0: 100%. They're scary.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they are. They're very scary. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was was grieve, especially the loss of a child. I, at one point, was rubbing at my arms thinking I could get out of my skin and dip into a nice, new, shiny life where none of this was happening. I didn't want to do it. And I had to cheerlead myself through it by just saying, I will survive, I don't know how, I don't know what this looks like, but as bad as it is right now, it'll never be as bad as getting the news. That part is over and it will never hurt that much again. And the mm. last chapter of his life cannot be the last chapter of your own. So I had these little mantras that I would repeat to myself when I got in those real painful episodes and they were bad. I mean, curled up on the shower floor, screaming and crying and banging the walls. It's bad. Mm. But <clears throat> knowing it had an end and knowing that that release of emotion would eventually lift in a few seconds and I could go distract myself.
0: Hmm you know I, I think you you brought up this really good point of sometimes us feeling like these emotions are so overwhelming that that we won't be able to survive through it and and you I had a few experiences recently. I think there's two elements to that. One, there's this social fear that, oh, because I feel so strongly, I won't be able to fit in. I won't be able to be perceived by the people around me as normal. And you have this social fear. And then there's this personal fear of, oh, because I feel this way, I'm not going to be able to, you know, whatever issue, whatever it is that you you feel about yourself, you, you fear that as well. Do you think that this social fear is sometimes larger than the person? Is that the full extent of it? Is is when we feel these feelings and we're like, I don't want to feel this. Is it because of some sort of like social perception? Or it, it, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I knew that the grief experience was going to be years. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so there's a lot of fear with. I don't want to feel like this for years Mm. and you know I I just think a lot of people end up circling the wagon and if you dive right in you get past that raw part that much faster
0: Mm.
1: if you deny those feelings if you numb them they'll come back like a boomerang on steroids (laughs) and you'll be in that negative raw part a lot longer Mm or it'll come out in some ugly <clears throat> and unattractive ways like you'll be angry and irritable you'll you know wreck your car hmm. and that's why it's really important to have those outlets to have you know especially with males they don't they don't often connect with to each other in an emotional way hmm. and we need to raise our males to allow them to share that part of themselves. Because, I'll be honest with you, I'd never want to marry somebody who had no feelings, or, (laughs) you
0: know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think we kind of need to redefine masculinity so it's not so toxic. Mm. And um, so I, I think you really bring up a good point, and that's why I encourage teachers like when kids come back to school do an anonymous survey how does it feel to be back at school i'm excited and anxious i'm anxious i'm dreading it and then allow them to make a comment and then you can share those anonymous results with the whole classroom Hmm. when you do that what do you think happens to the rest of the people once they hear those comments first thing they usually think is Oh my gosh, I am not the only one. So we're often telling people you're not alone. It's kind of a weak statement, but what I like to do is help people feel like they're not alone is to play games or to do activities where people recognize that they're not alone and they understand it and they feel it in their souls because that is what's effective. Kids will really open up once they figure out, oh my gosh, my whole class feels some level of anxiety about coming to school. And 100% of the teenagers that I interviewed, they either felt, they either thought they were dreading it or felt anxious and excited. Nobody felt just excited. Hmm. So 100% felt some level of anxiety so there has to be some kind of acceptance that I'm going to go to this party I'm walking in alone I'm going to have moments of anxiety it's not going to feel good but I'm going to survive and I'm going to figure out how to meet new people don't start looking at your phone that is a crutch Mm. you know one thing I learned to do in like networking events was to go up to a group of people going hi I'm new to this group, and so I need to meet new people, and I'm introducing myself.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I mean, people were very accepting of that. You know, nobody walks into a new environment and has instant friends, they all have to go through the same process. And we're not realizing that the guy right next to us is feeling the exact same way we mm.
0: are. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, the, saying that mantra of I am going to survive, I think, I don't say that enough. Every time I'm like, maybe this is going to be the time. Maybe, the, you know, actually having that confidence in yourself and the tools that you have and the capabilities that you're, that you have in your toolkit, just to be like, I will make it through this, I think is so powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so simple. And I would be on the floor, curled up in the ball, and I would just say, I'm going to survive. <laughs> i, I you know, this pain will not kill me. It feels like it is, mm. but I will
0: survive. This concept of resilience, though, I think is, is one of the most important things to incorporate into a school. You know, as sharing this with you earlier, I think one of the big questions that schools have to help students comprehend with contend with is why should I stay alive? Like, why do I keep going with this? What is the purpose of me living? And so, I know you, you mentioned some some trip, tricks and tools that teachers can implement in their classrooms. Can you share some of those?
1: Sure. So I have a, an e-book uh, called Resilience and um, Safety Planning, you know, and you did this little index card in the classroom. And it's it's kind of a hack of the whole safety plan thing for suicide prevention. But why couldn't anybody have, like, a safety and resilience plan because life gets hard, right? It never goes perfect for anybody. I mean, there's always some speed bumps along the way. Sometimes life explodes in your face. How are you going to handle those moments? You know, maybe it was your life dream to be an airline pilot and they, you know, they say that you're colorblind and so now you can't be that pilot, you know, and then, oh my gosh, your whole life dream is gone. How are you going to forge a new path? How are you going to manage that? So thinking about what is important to you and even moments in your life that have been very joyful. So there are times when I'm really struggling where where I think about a, a moment in Vienna where I was in a palace having dinner. I mean, it's just a bizarre random that I ended up being invited to this event and it was such a big deal and we had this table of people it was just such a perfect fit it was such a perfect night the food was so good the atmosphere was amazing and we laughed so hard everybody started coming up and standing around us because they wanted to be part of it and I remember just feeling so lucky to be at that table at that night So when I'm struggling, I think back on that memory. And all I need to do is write on an index card, Vienna. And immediately I can conjure up that memory. But also having those moments in your life where that were really, really special. And that kind of take you back and make you feel warm. And that gives you the strength to move forward when you start to connect with your reasons to live, whether it's your dog, your mom, your family, and those memories I talked about. Those are your reasons for living. Not
0: not as much
1: your future purpose, but really what do you have now?
0: Now. That's beautiful, actually. I I think, you know, even the way I, I, I think I visualize these things myself it's typically for things in the future not things that I currently have or the people in my life or the the sunsets that i get to see it's, it's always about some future goal that if i stay alive i will maybe one day be able to achieve that but then i think what, what you're what you're trying what i hear you saying is that every time something to that vision gets you know there's some detriment to that vision where either it can't happen anymore then all of a sudden the pillar for why you stayed or staying alive is now shaken and so that that can kind of create these tremors that uh, may be hard to handle
1: Right. You want to keep those reasons for living front of mind. And that's Mm. why the index card, a lot of people carry that in their back pocket. And they'll pull them out. If if you're struggling, it's a good time to carry it in your back pocket, open it up, and look at it. Mm. Three times a day if you need to. And that way, kind of remind yourself of why you're here.
0: Mm. And I guess, you know, before we close this up, I guess my question is... What happens when things on those lists are taken away from you, for example? I guess at some point, they must be things that are intrinsic to yourself, right? The, the strongest things you can have on that card is simply uh, my self-talk. Like that. That's probably the, the only... I'm not even sure if that's something you really have control over, but everything else that's around you can be taken away to some certain extent.
1: Oh, you can definitely control your self-talk. There are definitely yeah. strategies around that, and... yeah if you put your mom down on the card and your mom dies she's not with you in the way that she was with you before but she's still with you Mm. you're carrying her in your heart so it's not like she's disappeared because her memory and all the things that went with her are still with you and they live within you and so that person isn't gone, it's just that they're transformed in a different way. And like, if you've got a best friend and you have a fight and that person, that's why you list more than one thing for your reasons for living. You know, at least five, because probably there's going to be two at least left during <laughs> any kind of crisis. Yeah. And if it's not, then you create a new card
0: yeah and that brings us to the end of our conversation i wanted to thank ann moss again for sharing i know to share these things in an open way is extremely difficult and i really wanted to thank her for that that being said i also wanted to say this topic of death is one that has to be introduced in a serious way into the education system When we look around us and we see the growth of nihilistic beliefs I think a strong reason of that is because we're not discussing these things in the classroom. For as long as we try to shield children from the cyclic nature of life, I think we lose touch with the one thing that connects us all. No matter how wealthy we are and how beautiful we look and how healthy we are, there's one thing that connects us all. Is that we're going to die and we don't know when, we don't know how, and we don't know what happens after. And I think that is the fundamental thing that connects us. The existential dread of what am I doing? This makes no sense. I have no idea what I'm doing. No matter who you are, we are all connected by that. And we have these people who walk around in these elite universities who go, I'm smart. I know things. Do you really? Because if we don't understand these things, what do we even know? What is the point of knowing all these other things when we don't know when you're going to die and how it's going to happen and what that means about your life? I really want to bring death and love and, and these larger concepts to the forefront of more of the conversations held on this podcast because I think that is the crux of what an education system should look like. Apart from that, thank you again so much for your support and feedback. Follow me on LinkedIn at Gautam which is G-O-U-T-H-A-M-Y-E-G-A-P-P-A-N for more updates and the latest information on the podcast. Before closing off this episode, I wanted to say rest in power to Kirshnik Kari Ball, Takeoff from the Migos. He was one of my favorite artists of my favorite rap group growing up and it is uh, it, it has definitely been a reminder to, to look at everything I'm doing right now and be like alright, who cares about the number of views this gets, who cares about the number of grades. There comes a time when I will be dead. And there comes a time where all of this will not matter. And so I want to enjoy this and this conversation. I really wanted to sit in it and enjoy it as much as possible because at the end of the day, I don't know if there's anything more important than that. Whether this gets five views, 100 views, or 1,000 views, I want to do my best to enjoy every moment of it. So thank you so much. And as per usual, stay re-educated.